This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Primal Screen. It's a show all about screen culture, from the movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. My name is Flick Ford and joining me in the studio is Lisa Kovacevic. Hi Flick, thanks hey. for having me back. Oh, our pleasure. And we've also got a special guest joining us, media academic Dr Andrew Lynch. Hey Andy. Uh, hey, thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure. We're mixing it up a little bit. We're talking about TV. We've got um, Emmy award-winning series Succession, which is currently on Foxtel and Binge, which is about a wealthy media dynasty and the ageing media mogul at the centre, played by Brian Cox. Uh, It's created by Jesse Armstrong, who's also responsible for the wonderfully dark comedy series Peep Show. And the trailer for season three just dropped, which got us all very excited and hence why we're going to talk about it tonight. <laughs> and we'll also be talking about Mr. In Between, which is also on Foxtel and Binge. It's an Aussie TV series about a charismatic Melbourne hitman for hire, Ray Shoesmith, played by Scott Ryan. It's based on Ryan's low-budget crime documentary from 2005 called The Magician. And the third season of that also came out earlier this year. So both of these films, uh, <laughs> films. I'm so used to I saying films. People, I'm noticing people <laughs> are using that interchangeably now, though, with these series. I've, a, a few interviews I've been listening to, people are just, I don't know if it's by accident or by design, but they're saying film instead of TV series. <laughs> yeah. And it's because, Flick, we're talking about prestige television or quality television yeah. tonight. Yeah, yeah. And like both of, these, both of them fall into that. And, you know, prestige is a term that came about in the late 90s and early 2000s, sometimes known as quality television television in academic circles or the golden age of television and it's often coupled with what um, American critics refer to as peak TV but you know that's more of a time period than um, you know relating to access and platforms rather than the content itself. So just basically prestige television refers to high quality TV TV programs that are characterised by these morally ambiguous characters or anti-heroes who kind of have this questionable behaviour and complex plots and there's always a big production budget. Um, And it shares many similarities with um, cinematic form. So um, anyway, that's my definition. Let's get on to it. So someone who is a lot more <laughs> learned on this topic of prestige television or quality television is Dr. Andrew Lynch. Andy teaches cinema and screen studies in the Department of Media and Communication at Swinburne Uni. His work on telefantasy, genre and quality TV has been published in journals like Quarterly Review of Film and Video and Refractory. Uh, His current research focuses on the competing approaches of niche and marginal streaming video on demand services. Andy, um, (laughs) I've given a bit of a a hack definition of prestige television just before, Um, but what are are the precise and kind of definitive markers of a prestige television show? Look, I I think um, I think you did better than a than a hack job there, Flick. Um, (laughs) 
These are these are somewhat um, ambiguous uh, qualifiers, um, and as someone who's been writing about this stuff for the past well, decade or so, um, yeah, I can say you've probably done as as good as any of the uh, you know the the more scholarly publications in the in the <laughs> field. So, yeah, as you say, broadly, you know, prestige TV, which is sort of largely what particularly US critics call these shows, they're largely the shows uh, that have been put out sort of since the the late '90s. Uh, primarily on US cable networks, so things like um, HBO, uh, later on AMC, so you might know AMC from from Mad Men, Breaking Bad, HBO from The Sopranos and really everything else, and we're going to be talking about Succession, of course, later, Um, but also networks like FX, um, which, of course, um, uh, Mr. Inbetween, we are going to talk about later today, um, also kind of aired on as well. So really... All this kind of this this terminology came about, and it's funny we talk about these you know morally ambiguous protagonists or the sometimes called difficult men, you know, which was <laughs> this kind of uh, this this great term that's been coined to describe some of the um, yeah the kind of auteur showrunners behind these these shows. People like David Chase and and Matt Weiner and these sort of people, these kind of you know. Uh, "Quote unquote," you know, g- great male auteurs, the, you know, who who brought uh, anti-heroes like Don Draper and um, Walter White to the to the, the small screen, I suppose. But this term actually started back in the eighties. Um, oh, really? uh, Jane, an academic Jane Foyer, um, you know, coined the term largely to talk about uh, the Mary Tyler Moore Show and oh, MTM right. Productions. So these these the really comedies and later some procedurals like Hill Street Blues, um, which were you know quality in the sense that they had these slightly deeper characters, a little bit more serialization, so some kind of plots running into one another, you know, not only just kind of episodic um, storytelling. So, you know, some of that earlier, you know, I guess comedic focus of quality TV has maybe got lost in in amongst all the the big hype around the, um, you know, the the golden age of the 90s and 2000s and all the Tony Soprano. It's interesting to hear you say that because I was just sort of reading over a a chapter of yours, Andy, and um, yeah, I was curious about its origins because everywhere else that I've read seems to um, pinpoint the late 90s is where it all started. Mm. And I thought, I sort of thought to myself, that feels wrong to me. And you mentioned mentioned Hill Street Blues there, which was produced yeah. by Mark Frost, um, who went on to produce Twin Peaks with David Lynch, which was about 89, 90. Mm. So I'm thinking why, uh, for me, I always thought that that was the defining moment of this sort of long form cinematic universe that was created for television. Has that been overlooked in this field or is that is that one of the markers? I'd say it hasn't been overlooked in the academic field, but it got overlooked in you know, frankly, the spectacular marketing of HBO. Um, yeah, it's Which really took, you know, you'll remember their their classic um, tagline that they've since got rid of, you know, it's not TV, it's HBO. Um, mm. Accompanied, of course, with that great bump of the, oh, you know, that you played earlier. <laughs> yeah. You know, to, to kind of try and, I guess, rebrand what then was a, was a premium cable network. So no ads. Um, yeah, you get it, you know, in America as if you, you have to pay extra on top of your cable package. It doesn't come with the basic uh, package. So they had to kind of redefine. I mean, HBO, home box office, was primarily like many of these channels, they played reruns of old movies yeah. until they started doing this kind of original programming to really add a kind of veneer of prestige and then to get in audiences and this was the case in the 80s and 90s, but to try and attract, you know, this increasingly fragmented audience. You know, it wasn't the, uh, you know, the, the, old, the good old days, I suppose, where you got 
33.3% of the entirety of the US or Australia or anywhere with, with broadcast network TV, there are all these different cable channels. There are all these different ways to watch TV. So it became about getting desirable uh, audiences as much as anything else. You know, maybe people with a little bit more disposable income, college degrees, things like that. And so, you know, But why are they um, desirable audiences? Because surely for a network, any audience is a good audience as long as you've got the numbers. It's about figures and advertising dollars, is it not? What what is it about desirable? What makes an audience, a particular demographic of audience desirable to a network? And why? Well, as to do with, with much about quality TV, uh, money. <laughs> so, yeah, so this was, of course, when, when cable uh, networks started popping up, they were either partially reliant, like something like AMC. So AMC shows have ad breaks, you'll notice, because they're, they're ad-supported. Um, but HBO, you're, you know, there's no ads. So it's really just about trying to attract people who have the money to be paying for these slightly more expensive packages month in, month out. It's about that exclusive content that maybe makes you feel a bit better about yourself. Oh, I'm an HBO kind of person, you know. <laughs> maybe I should keep, you know, forking out that money each week for this, you know, this sense of this classier uh, television, quote-unquote, quote I'm using, you know, the rabbit's ears here, um, rather than the, you know, the dreck, the everything else that's on just free-to-wear. So it is a lot about kind of, you know, invoking ideas of, of taste, low taste, bad taste, everyone else, and then the kind of, maybe elite few, the people who, you know, would be cinephiles or film snobs, mm. then maybe they can also be, you know, uh, TV snobs in a different way as well. well. Yeah, on that actually, what's some, something that stood out to me is this, you know, when you think about most of the shows that um, define the, the term te- prestige television, you know, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, um, The Wire, True Detective, they kind of, you know, it's interesting hearing you talk about how it started as comedy because those I feel like fit into a particular kind of genre where there is comedy elements and like the two shows we're going to talk about today, Succession and Mr. Mm. Inbetween, have comic elements and comic writers behind them. But, yeah, what do you think of the genres that dominate prestige television? Well, just like anything else, and I think, you know, certainly I, I, def- I you know, define in my work quality TV as like a, a super genre. You know, it's not, it's not as specific as something like horror or the Western or something. It's got these really, really broad conventions and then there's kind of sub-genres within there. So largely, you know, what has actually constituted a show that makes people think it's, you know, fancy, worth money, you know, it's special other than normal TV has actually changed a lot over the years. So as you say, in the late 90s through the kind of 2010s, it was these stories about, you know, troubled, uh, usually men, kind of anti-heroes. That was what, you know, quality TV was about. There were other types of shows being made, of course. Remember, you know, HBO's original programming got its, you know, most of its initial kind of clout with Sex and the City. Yeah, So right. mm. some of those things, you know, get, get forgotten and there's trends just like any other genre. You know, trends come and go. We get sick of things. You know, we, we're looking for something new. And so... Yeah, I'd say really in the last maybe, you know, 10, 15 years, we saw maybe a bit of a push towards, you know, a little bit more self-awareness in the genre, Mm. maybe some more kind of heightened elements, things like Breaking Bad, which is, you know, even more kind of over the top, I guess. Um, And then you start to get, you know, comedic elements and a little bit more we get the, uh, you know, I guess the comeback of a lot of quality kind of comedy. You might think about the, as we'll talk about with with Mr. Inbetween, the, you know, the the dramedy short form, things Mm. that only go for about half an hour, something like, which that was really, I guess, not invented, but, you know, spearheaded by something like uh, Transparent Mm. from from, uh, Amazon Prime Video. 
So those shows that kind of bring in, they have they kind of take themselves seriously, but then they're also full of funny characters as well. So again, it's just about you know changing trends, trying to appeal to audiences at, at the time. Because these shows are meant to be timely too. You know, mm. they're meant to be often of the moment, speaking to contemporary issues and values um, in a in a supposedly, you know artistically motivated way. I've definitely found that with shows like The Wire and, um, of course, we had um, recently, um, oh, I've forgotten his name for a second, Michael K. Williams who plays Omar Little, Passed pass away. away. Yeah. yeah, and so people, a lot of people revisited that series and um, there is a timelessness to it, I feel, but I think that's often um, connected to its connection, uh, its um it sort of forms this like theatrical, it has like a strong theatrical connection, I think. Mm. Um, and I, I feel like that plays into the story arcs and, you know, and maybe that's an element of prestige television because I think I see that also in Succession, um, which, yeah, we'll get we'll get into that in, in, soon. Um, I just wanted to ask Andy, like many of the examples we're talking about are American TV shows. Mm. So have we, do we see prestige television? Do we see this same, this same um, you know, a lot of it is – is bound to um, what's happening on a technological level and a cultural level um, and all these things coming together in order for prestige television to really thrive. Do we mm. see that in other countries and other contexts? I mean, we, we certainly do, but, again, it's all based on what are the kind of, I guess, incentives mm. of that, that local market, that local industry. So, you know, you might see what I guess to people outside Scandinavian, you know, northern European countries, we had the big trend of, uh, you know, the quote-unquote Scandi Noir, mm. you know, these, these Nordic, usually kind of crime dramas, some political thrillers like Borgen, Borgen yeah. um, <laughs> those were all kind of exported and they were seen as very much part of this kind of quality tradition. Um, but, you know, I mean, they're only Scandi Noirs outside of Scandinavia. At home, they're just Noirs, <laughs> yeah. you know. So, so, and they have, you know, a slightly stronger, um, I guess, tradition of, um uh, you know, public broadcasters and things mm. like that. Um, it depends on the nation, of course. Same with England, right? England has a much of it, the UK broadly has a much different tradition of, you know, making of what counts as you know quality as artistic, right? They you know started with early you know th- theatrical broadcasts of, of of Shakespeare and things like that. So, and there's again a bit more, a little bit like Australia, I suppose, with our ABC and SBS, an expectation that you know. Um, that, you know, the national providers will make something that's a little bit more, you know, artistic, so to speak. Mm. Um, So then, you know, in America it comes in really when there's these cable networks, when the audience starts fracturing and they have to distinguish themselves. So, in you know, different different flavours in different places, but they don't quite or haven't traditionally worked quite the same way as that US quality TV that's become so ubiquitous um, around the world. The, uh, one of the other interesting things that I've learned that has really that really characterizes the genre of quality TV or prestige TV is the copious amount of sex, profanities, <laughs> violence, gore, blood, and these are all really base. Uh, mm. things that you would expect mm. to see in sort of raunchy TV. Like pulpy. Pulp, yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, and so can you talk a little bit to why those things are there um, and what makes them quality TV still at the same time? No, it's a great, it's a great point. And it, it comes back to, I guess, why this is a you know, slightly awkwardly problematic name for these things to be called mm. quality, right? Because it's not about any real objective sense of quality it's about something feeling special and other Mm. and so when we think of you know everyday normal tv as something for everyone you know it's free to wear you know in in most places anyway it's free to wear 
Um, so, of course, there's kind of content restrictions on when you can and can't show. And so anytime these, I guess, more exclusive platforms, be they now streaming services or before that uh, cable networks, they had to say, well, how do we distinguish ourselves? How are we a product worth subscribing to? Well, we'll show you what they can't show you on regular TV. Mm. And yes, early cable networks did indeed show, you know, raunchier material. Um, but that was kind of classed as a bit just you're an adult, so you can pay for what you want. Um, but of course, yeah, later we got, you know, leading to maybe, um, let's say, over the top um, and somewhat exploitative depictions of, you know, nudity and sex and things like that. We got the famous sexploitation, that term called, I think, by by critic Miles McNutt of, you know, this unnecessary, you know, seemingly unnecessary nudity that had little to do with, you know, a plot or anything else other than to kind of titillate and to show that, you know, this isn't what you can get on everyday TV. This is something you have to pay mm. for. So it's, again, really about just, you know, using that idea of distinction to make something seem exclusive and, and special. And I suppose appealing to the sense of, you know, this is for adults. This is not for everyone at every time. So really that's where that sort of comes in. Part, part of me sort of thought it, it sort of justifies us watching titillation as well, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just well, like, oh, I get to sort of, you know, um, participate in pornography or if, or violence or horror and feel okay about it because I can talk about it at the, you know, in the lunchroom at work, you know. Well, that happened with Game of Thrones, didn't it? It totally did. You know, yeah. like there were so yeah. much, um, so many rape scenes in the TV series yeah. and the way in which that was... Um, Oh, there's a whole. I mean, that's another. That's another. Se- <laughs> it's not a discussion. Yeah, yeah, it it's is beyond what we can talk about. But it's now, sort of. But, but the it's... but the series Game of Thrones. Um, it, it sort of cloaks it in uh, themes of um, politics or p- uh, struggles for power. But well, the, you know, the appa- apparently the... not cloaked. Sorry, it, it's very <laughs> no. explicit in that. No, that, no, no, you know, no. It makes it sort of justifiable. It justifies yeah. it apparently through the fact that it's um, anchored to history, Lisa. Yeah, did you yeah. Know that? <laughs> yeah. In a mythical <laughs> world. Back then, these things back happened then, all the time. Happened, back yeah. then, I do love how people talk about Game of Thrones in that way. Back in the olden days, yeah, it was really like that. Of dragons. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Game of Thrones is actually um, a TV show that you talk a lot about in your own research, Andy. Um, mm. You know, your f- research focuses on telefantasy and, and you note that the fantastical genre um, content such as, you know, monsters and dragons and, you know, space travel is now considered both prestigious and potentially mainstream in its appeal. So it's kind of shifted there through prestige um, television. Um, I know you can't wrap up your book and your research, but um, how, how, can you just give us a taste of that? What are, what's, some of the, what's the impact that this has had? No, well, this is something I, I tried to, I guess, to come to grips with. And, yeah, I've just, I've just um, you know, hurriedly submitted a, a manuscript for a forthcoming <laughs> book about this kind of very topic. But, yeah, so I think I, I was interested in the fact that, you know, yes, uh, shows like things we talked about, right, you know, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, um, excuse me, not a Game of Thrones, but these these shows had been, you know, considered kind of culturally important, right? They very much, you know, spoke to the zeitgeist. But, I mean, they never really got the ratings success that we might expect of, I guess, a traditional hit in, mm. in kind of televisual terms. But around the kind of 2010 mark, and although there were some, you know, shows a little bit before this that experimented, you know, Lost had some great success around that time. Heroes, you know, didn't last too well, but... There were shows that experimented with mixing that idea of kind of mm. gritty realism. Mm. And that's where you speak about something like violence. I think violence is so often invoked in these shows as to show you, you know, what it's really like. You know, of course, even in fantastical scenarios, mm. it's what it really would be like, you know, mm. the, the, you know the cruelty of, of, you know, and tragedy of everyday life. 
And so shows like this, including things like True Blood, you remember, which were, certainly worked yeah. in the raunchier side. Yes. Um, of, <laughs> Can recommend. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> but then, you know, shows like uh, The Walking Dead on AMC, of course, their previous big hit being Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And, of course, HBO pivoted. Their next big show was something, you know, Game of Thrones based on, you know, relatively successful but, you know, beloved by fans, you know, telefantasy sword and uh, sword and sorcery kind of tales. And so we start to see this kind of blending, you know, mm. this way of getting audiences to maybe take these things that we'd, we'd kind of taken seriously on the big screen, you know, we'd... we'd understand that Star Wars and Lord of the Rings are all things that, you know, many people kind of are beloved. But telefantasy on TV, with a few kind of exceptions, fantastical TV was often thought of as a bit cheap or lowbrow, mm. you know, people thought of, you know, Xena Warrior Princess or the original series of, of Star Trek, as, as delightful as it is, looks a bit kind of rinky-dink. So <laughs> but, these shows yeah. tried to kind of blend uh, this together, these kind of, you know, you know, these um, problematic anti-heroes and these complex moral worlds and these kind of staggering budgets um, and then bring in those kind of fantastical elements, which people already loved at the movies. And sure enough, these shows got, you know, ratings that cable networks certainly had almost never seen before. I think we sometimes forget now that it's in its 12th season, mm. 11th season, I should say, The Walking Dead beat out, you know, Sunday Night Football in America. Wow. You know, these, this is crazy. And, of course, Game of Thrones was the show talked about around the world. So these shows managed to do kind of everything at once, everything at least that you can expect from a or you would ever hope for from a modern TV show. It, they mm. kind of, to me, marry um, the the child, the inner child psyche and the adult psyche. It's sort of like mm. it's giving the child what it desires to see and allowing by, by putting the adult content in there it allows us to enjoy it somehow <laughs> with, with, bit of yeah yeah without yeah. guilt a guilty pleasure we've been speaking with our special guest dr andrew lynch um about quality tv or prestige tv tv as we're calling it today um about and also about his research on telefantasy um andy's book quality telefantasy and how <laughs> sorry i'm remembering you how you US um, quality TV brought zombies, dragons and androids into the mainstream. Great title, Andy. His book will be out um, in a few months. It's been published through Routledge. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Here we are. Is he about to strip? Just remember I think he's I'm going to masturbate on stage to a photo of Dad. My boy Squiggle cooked up this beat for me. Check it. Born on the North Bank, king of the East Side, 50 years strong. Now he's rolling in a sick rod, handmade suits, raking in loot. Five star general, y'all best oh, no. salute. Yo, bitches be no. mad, but the king is Jesus, no. no. Ken W.A. I read it. It is burning my eyes, but I cannot look away. I couldn't I couldn't resist playing that clip. It's like one of my favorite moments in the entire series. Um that was uh Kendall rapping to his dad, uh Logan Roy, from uh Succession, which is an American satirical drama television series created by Jesse Armstrong, who, as I mentioned before, is a co-writer of Peep Show with Sam Bain, which stars David Mitchell and Robert Webb. Um, so Peep um, <laughs> Succession, Peep Show could be a whole other one. Um, Succession premiered on June 2018 on HBO and it's just been renewed for a third season, um, which is set to come out next month. The series is about the Roy family. 
a dysfunctional and extremely wealthy media dynasty who own Waystar Royco, a global media and entertainment conglomerate. So when the patriarch of the family, Logan Roy, suddenly becomes unwell, his children, Connor, Kendall, Shiv and Roman, fight over who should take over. It's got um, an amazing, amazing cast. Um, you've got Brian Croc. Cox as Logan Roy, the sort of the lead, um, the, the patriarch. Uh, Jeremy Strong as Kendall, the, the most likely successor of the company, it sometimes seems. Uh, Kieran Culkin as Roman, the kind of ratbag younger brother with like endless salty one-liners. Um, and Australian actor Sarah Snook as Shiv, Matthew McFadden as her husband Tom, uh, Alan Ruck as Connor, the older, very often forgotten um, brother. Um, also, Holly Hunter in season two makes an appearance, and um, the trailer for season three, which got us so excited, features Alexander Skarsgård and Adrian Brody. Um, so, Succession has been referred to as a modern day King Lear, and the inclusion of theatre actors like Brian Cox um, only kind of strengthens this idea. The show has some very obvious parallels with real life figures such as media mogul Rupert Murdoch and his sons James and Lachlan. And in fact, uh, Jesse Armstrong, when he was coming up with this, he actually wanted to create a basic, like a fictionalised account of the Murdoch family. And um, yeah, it was actually quite, yeah. it was actually his seventy eighth birthday or eighty eightieth yeah. birthday or something that he was going to base it on, which this whole series kicks off with. Mm. Um, yeah. The head of this family, is it his 80th? I think or 78th or yeah, something. Yeah, he's coming he, up to 80. And yeah. he has a heart attack which sort of triggers the whole story. Yeah. So, Lisa, you're an exceptionally busy woman and have yeah. only recently got onto succession. What, yeah. are, your, what are your first thoughts? I, I've, I crammed it in the last few days. Do you know what? <clears throat> so many people have been raving about it. Uh, I work in the office here at Triple R and lots of the staff um, have been raving about it for the last couple of years and I just could never get into it. And you know why? I've got this weird thing with um, the way it's shot, which really bothers me. And I had the same problem with Arrested Development, which I love, but it took me so many years to watch because they use digital Zoom all the time. And I, I know it's this is really um, elitist of me maybe, but it's like a it's an aesthetic sensibility that really puts me off um, certain TV or film. Like it just looks cheap um, and it's distracting to me. I mean, it's used in Arrested Development for very comic. It took, um, yeah, but it took me terms. ages to get into that language, I mm, think. I was okay. just, I just couldn't, un- I just was so distracted by. I think my, my first job in film and television was as a focus puller. So I have a lot of respect <laughs> for people yeah. that, you know, that, that old world um, skill. But um, yeah, that really put me off for a long time. But so I, I was glad that you forced me to watch it because I'm really, <laughs> I'm right into it now. I've only watched the first season. Um, oh, it gets so much better. Yeah, that's what they, that's what they say. Um, there's a lot of setup here for all mm. the characters in the first season. Um, and, you know, as we've been discussing tonight, I was trying to look at it through the lens of prestige television, which was quite a good, interesting uh, approach to have with it because mm. as we've been discussing tonight, uh, HBO has um, this amazing ability to gussy up, uh, you know, what would be otherwise sort of lowly genres um, by adding, you know, um, some intellectual flair. So The Sopranos, which we mentioned before, could just be a mobster story full of violence and horror, but there's a mob boss at the, the centre of it who suffers from anxiety um, and there's a shrink and there's dream sequence. And so all of a sudden you've got, you know, this kind of uh, artistic property. And I Mm. felt like I was trying to think, well, what's the base 
here for Succession. And really, it's, it could be The Bold and the Beautiful or it could be, um, for an older reference, Dynasty or um, what was another one from the 80s? I'd, 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 anyway, I, I'd written down. But, but it, it, it's a soap opera, essentially. Um, but it's a soap opera uh, about power and media moguls. Um, but unlike those shows, it doesn't rely on titillation for plot twists. Um, really, it's about the machinations of this family um, and the abuse of power. Oh, well, that's, well, that's where I'm going. So it, much, it, yeah. is, it is actually a story at its base. It's a story about abuse, but mm. not just abuse of power, but abuse of children and within families. Um, yeah, really, that's exactly what I took from it, Flick, was um, there, it's about these, these three uh, plus one children um, <laughs> vying for, for power within this company, but what they're really vying for is the attention and approval of their father, mm. whose favourite child really is his company that he's built himself. Yeah. Uh, so they'll, they'll never get it. They'll never get it. And yeah. it's just this sort of cycle of abuse. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, I know you're a big fan of Succession as well. Um, we were both messaging each other about how good the trailer was. Um, look, what are – yeah – I suppose how does how do how does this fit into prestige television? How how does this come as like a prime example of it? Well, it, it feels in some ways it kind of feels like old school HBO. Mm. You know, it's it's you know it's it's somewhat I was going to say somewhat self serious. I mean, it's you know it's shot very beautifully. Uh, uh, you know, maybe let's say it's shot very intentionally, if yeah, not beautifully. With the exception yes, of I, the digital zip, so it is shot beautifully, and the production values are very high. Yeah, it, mm. it's just that one little thing. <laughs> Really bothered me. <laughs> oh, it, it it just reeks like money. This show, you know, it's got these these kind of uh, prestigious actors. It's got an incredible score, as you say, by Nicholas Bratel, who's largely known for uh, for, for film scores now, um, mm. particularly with Barry Jenkins. So everything about it, sh- you know, should be maybe even. I, I I think that's actually why it took me quite a while to get into it. I, I missed the first season entirely. Caught up on that watched along with the second season because I thought it was just going to be another story of these kind of troubled, largely men. I know, of course, we have the wonderful Sarah Snook um, as Siobhan Roy, the the, the only daughter, um, but I expected it was going to be these kind of, you know, ah, oh, yes, they're, you know, yes, they're terrible guys. Yes, they do bad things, but, ah, oh, but maybe they've got a heart of gold or they've got some redeemed characters, uh, characteristics. Oh, it is not that at all. This is a show of <laughs> irredeemable people. Um, and I think that's where it, it really comes into its own it's got that kind of bleak you know um you know really dark black uk comedic sensibility (laughs) in which it can be a little more kind of nihilistic even than even you know the the darkest moments of your your sopranos your breaking bad or something like that and i think it's a it's really self-aware in really powerful and, and kind of great ways that these characters that they just sometimes couldn't get any worse. They're so awful to one another. Yeah. And as soon as you think that there's one of them is actually redeemable, especially um, uh, Shiv Roy, she just is is maybe you know almost almost worse than a lot of them <laughs> in the in the way that they're able to you know lie, cheat, and steal. Um, and as you say, in some ways, especially kind of emotionally and and in some ways physically abuse one another as well. I would say it's deeply untitillating. I think that's something I think I liked yes. about it so much is that it's it sort of says. You know, I think whereas, you know, the earlier, um, you know, difficult men quality TV shows that, that dominated for so long sort of, they did say, yes, these these guys are bad, these worlds, these criminal worlds are horrible, but isn't it also kind of cool? Like there was that little <laughs> wink yeah. to it. This, yeah. said, you know, Succession says, hey, you know, would you like to live this incredible wealthy life? And then, you know, 
you know, blast you in the face with it and you go, oh, God, no, <laughs> you know, this is horrible. These are, <laughs> yeah. I, I hope no one at home is thinking like, hey, Logan Roy, pretty cool guy. I, I don't want to meet that person. You know, this is <laughs> I don't think about horrible people. Yeah, and I don't think anyone's feeling that well. I hope they're not either. But, uh, you know, you said before about like all of the, you know, a lot of um, masculine characters and we've, we've seen that kind of dominance of male characters in prestige television. Um, but I feel like there's such a close analysis and interrogation mm. of masculinity in this series and um, like you said before, Lisa, this deep kind of like familial ab- abuse that happens and, in, in you know, it kind of extends out as well to like the um, in-laws as well. And it's it's just a fascinating um, exploration. But something I really love um, about Armstrong is uh, the creator of Succession is that you can see where that peep show um, comic edge is coming into it. And like you said before, Andy, about that idea of like just showing these characters so raw and peep show has that element to it. You know, like the comedy in that is so uncomfortable sometimes, but it taps into a very real truth. And I think that's what separates Succession from other shows, like maybe even like House of Cards or like those big political dramas where they sometimes just feel a bit performative, but you don't get a sense of the actual characters at the, at the core and all of their vulnerabilities, like every single character in this family, you have a sense of um, deep trauma and pain behind mm-hmm. the way that they act. And of course, they build themselves up and they're incredibly wealthy and they have all of this privilege, but it does not equate to any sense of happiness or peace. No, and it's very much um, about uh, sort of intergenerational trauma Mm. is what I'm getting. Mm. I've only seen the first sort of season, but this is what I'm getting from it and how, uh, you know, and and we're sort of told in a capitalist society that money and wealth will buy you happiness, but these kids were born with it. They were born Mm. with money and wealth and they don't have it. So then what? So then what do you, what's going to fill the void and, and not very little. And these, these sort of irredeemable people have wield all this power and they don't know what to do with it, you know, and and what they're doing is putting all that trauma outward onto the Mm. world and causing all this other pain that they just don't have to suffer any consequences for. You yeah, know. yeah, absolutely. And there's an amazing amount of detail in this show. I just want to say that like even from everything from the um, the film, so they have lots of different directors involved with every single episode. Um, some are coming from a comic background, but also just the set design, the um, fashion, the hairstyles, every element of this show has been so well thought through. Anyway, if you've just tuned in, we are talking about Succession, which is currently on Foxtel and Binge. You're listening to Primal Screen. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hey, you're tuned into Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Lisa Kovacevic and Dr. Andrew Lynch. So for today's show, we're talking about prestige television and we opened the show with Succession and now it is time for our second TV show. Oh, there was this little prick and he'd been bullying me for about two years. And um, this one day, you know, we were playing damn ball and he just started getting stuck into me and, you know, and I started crying and, and he just kept following me, just kept saying shit to me, just wouldn't leave it alone, you know. Mm. And I just grabbed him and threw him up against a wall and just beat the absolute fuck out of him. 
That was from the Australian crime drama Mr Inbetween. It was an exchange between troubled hitman Ray Shoesmith, played by Scott Ryan, um, who also wrote the series, um, and he's opening up in that scene to his girlfriend Ali, played by Brooke Satchwell, about the history of violence in his life. Um, Lisa, the third and final season of this series premiered in May this year. Um, for any listeners who haven't heard of the show, what's it about? So Mr Inbetween, it's a, an Australian black comedy crime drama uh, television series which premiered on FX in the US uh, and then w- uh, premiered here on Fox Showcase back in 2018 and it's currently, yeah, as you say, in its third and final season on Foxtel and Binge here in, in Australia and it's essentially the story of a former soldier turned hitman trying to balance his criminal activities with his obligations to friends and family. He's a father to Brittany, his daughter with his ex-wife Jacinta, a loving boyfriend to Ali who, as you said, played by Brooke Satchel and a good caretaker to his terminally Terminally ill brother Bruce. Oh, he's so good in that. So good. He's great, actually. Who, what's his name again? Nicholas. Oh, yeah, I've, I haven't written it down oh, here. I should have my he's list wonderful. of cast. Um, and Ray also covers for his friend Gary when needed and carries out his boss Freddie's bidding without question, which usually involves punishing lowly criminals for breaking the criminal code. But when it comes to his felonious undertakings, Ray wields his own brand of violence and black humour when dealing with nefarious characters of the underworld. Uh, this antisocial behaviour, however, starts to, you know, take its toll on his own personal life. Um, yeah, and at first glance, I reckon the character of Ray Shoe Smith does sound like what has come to typify many prestige TV series, an amoral anti-hero, a Tony mm. Soprano or yeah. a Walter White. Um, trying Especially the to, haircut. Totally. How Walter White was yeah. the haircut. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that whole idea of trying to reconcile family life with the criminal world. Um, but the character actually predates Breaking Bad, even though it just came out in 2018. It was first sketched by Ryan back in the late 90s and he's been sitting with this character for 22 years before he got it up and it's uh, sort of partially thanks to Nash Edgerton who's the director. Mm. Um, So originally it was like a student film, uh, then he did like uh, a long cut of 88 minutes and a shortcut for a Mm. film festival and Nash is like, no, it's got to be a full feature so they made it into a feature again Um, and then it got a release here and in the States to pretty like good um, critical Reviews, but uh, just didn't. It just nearly died without mm. anyone ever having really seen it. But he just couldn't let the character go. Well, it's got. If you look at like Scott Ryan, is so good in this role. Like it's it's amazing, and it's because he's sat with that character for so long and this idea. Um, and those are his only acting credits. Well, the, the, and the reason that they <laughs> so, couldn't get it up is because every time they pitched the show at a network, and they pitched it at HBO mm. and at Foxtel, lots of the big ones, and all the big ones here, SBS, ABC, as you mentioned before, Andy in Australia will often go with the national broadcasters, but um, no one wanted to take it on board because they were insisting that Scott had to play the lead character. And they're like, well, you're not an actor. You're not a trained actor. You've never been in anything, mm. so we're not going to take that risk with you. But he was so determined to play the part, and Nash was so determined determined to have him in it, um, that they stuck to their guns on it. And he just went back to like delivering pizzas and t- driving taxis yeah. for 22 <laughs> years. And then he said when they finally got the call from FX to to produce it, he was like, no, this is definitely not going to happen because he'd been let down so many times. And he'd also, um, you know, declined some big mm. offers because they wanted to compromise the content. And he, he really had a strong vision for it, which they've set through. And I've got to say, it's just... 
it's actually it, it kind of negates against a lot of the things we've been talking mm. about. You know, it's this is like this this uh, series lives in the silences. Like mm. it's not uh, overly explicit. It's um, there's very little dialogue. Um, Do you think it, like just on that though, kind of similar to Mad Men? You know, Mad yeah, Men is really a TV series of, yes. where you watch for all of those tiny gestures and you could, if you just listen to the dialogue, you'd think not a lot is happening. I actually did think of Don Draper with Mm. this character, funnily you say that. Uh, uh, But there is a lot more dialogue that happens around Don Draper, whereas I didn't feel that here. I felt Mm. like, I actually feel like you were talking about um, violence and realism before, Andy, and I felt like the realism in this was way more real than, than yeah. what, what you'll see in, you know, like a pulp fiction. I, like, I think know. that's the Australian – I think that's the Australian creatives being involved because I feel like it seems very much like Australian cinema to me. Mm. Um, Andy, Mr Inbetween, it occupies, as Lisa's saying, a very, very different space um, to Succession, um, which we reviewed before the break. Um, now, obviously, these are kind of working char- class characters. It's set in Sydney. Um, what what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I, I remember when The Magician came out and I heard that it was it was good and that this guy, Scott Ryan, was just sort of, it was his project, it was his baby. He, he you know, did everything in the, in, the, uh, in the film. And so, yeah, I never caught that and I'm, I'm so glad I got to watch Mr. Inbetween. And, you know, I, I must say FX, yes, this was, um, this was you know, briefly going to be on FX Australia, right. which was going to make their own things, that you know, just this feels like this. This happens to him again and again. He gets mm. let down, but mm. you know, thank thank God it actually kind of came came to fruition. FX, um, uh, which in the states is run by John Langraf, who coined the term peak TV. So mm, nice interesting, work there. yeah. Uh, I think he's sometimes referred to informally as the mayor of TV. But FX <laughs> does a really good job of taking chances. I yeah, and you know, we don't necessarily always get the FX properties. You know, they don't air on FX here because we don't quite have it we now have um a showcase as you say but they've been doing just great work for for so long as you say giving giving chances to to these these you know shows that might not necessarily find a home elsewhere and if this didn't have scott ryan it would be the most generic mm. you know bad parody of the i was thinking of other you know bad bald men Vic mckay played by michael chiklis in the shield or, <laughs> or uh, he'd be another walter white yeah. even with the facial hair too yeah so, totally He's but so but, he's electric, isn't he? Like I just couldn't yeah. stop watching him. And his face, I, I've, I was actually thinking a bit of Tom Hardy's performance in Bronson, which is a Nicholas Winding Refn film from quite a while ago. The the plasticity of his face in being able to shift works so well because his character is actually living a dual life. You know, and it's it's amazing. Mm. I don't know. I'm so into this. <laughs> yeah, same. He he said that his like acting evolved as the series did because you know he's 52 now. Oh wow! And this is his first big role, like, and it's his only real like professional role. He's won two actor awards for this, by the way, as new best newcomer and best actor. Um, and I just think how wonderful that he can stick it up. You know, to Absolutely. the people that wouldn't hire him. Yeah, I just feel like there's an actor in everyone, you know, and I just think that <laughs> I'm glad that he got to, you know, explore that. And now he's got, you know, Hollywood at his beck and call because the series is doing really well in the states, and they haven't. This is another thing that I find remarkable. They haven't toned it down for American audiences. They'll probably have to watch it with subtitles because even me, <laughs> who speaks, you know, Australian, like at times I was like, what? <laughs> there's a lot of um, a lot of c c words being uh, thrown about. Yeah. <laughs> And fast, <laughs> yeah, there there is, and it's been yeah, it's just been a real word of mouth success too. Mm. It hasn't had a lot of money put into advertising or anything. I certainly heard about it through.
through friends and then told you guys about you know that's how it's come it's come to me but um yeah I, I I've I really I've yeah, really enjoyed this as well there's a there's a lot to be said you know um Scott Ryan has written it with Nash and Nash Edgerton has directed it normally on a series like this you would have several directors mm. and they all come in and do their episode this is but the whole thing is shot by Nash it's shot like a film mm. and so they they blocked it which means basically you you know every scene that the whole series uses at this house gets shot on this day every scene that uses this railroad gets shot on this day that's the way mm. you'd shoot a film right so it must have been such a mammoth undertaking to mm. have your head over this massive series and shooting, you know, episode 19 the same day you're shooting episode one. It's oh, incredible. absolutely. And like we, I was thinking just before about like the opening music is actually the sound of a fluorescent light. And I, I just love mm. like what a great comparison with Succession, which we talked about earlier, where you've got this beautiful, you know, score composed by, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, just a wonderful comparison between these two shows that we've been talking about. Um, that is Mr. Inbetween, currently on Foxtel and Binge. You You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Lisa Kovacevic and Dr. Andrew Lynch. We've been talking about prestige television um, and we covered Mr. Inbetween and Succession, which are both on Foxtel and Binge. Um, Andy, if listeners would like to know more about prestige television, do you have any recommendations for books or articles they can read? Um, yeah, look, to be, to be fair, you know, the old uh, academic books often co- come with a bit of a hefty <laughs> price tag, uh, so I won't be too cruel, but I would say checking out oh, uh, checking out the book Difficult Men uh, by Brett Martin, which paints a really good, including interviews, a really great picture of those kind of, um, you know, 2000s uh, Difficult Men shows um, on networks like HBO and AMC, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men those types of shows. It's a really good, a bit of an oral history and some great analysis there too. Fantastic. Um, Lisa, what have you, what have you been watching what lately? I, uh, oh, well, actually, I wanted to mention um, a great show that's just come out on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. It's called Brand New Cherry Flavor. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's like a, if you're into Lynch and you're into Cronenberg, watch that. We'll probably be doing an interview with the showrunners yes, um, we ne- next week. So yeah, check out Brand New Cherry Flavor. It's really weird and messed up and it's not for everyone. <laughs> I apologise. Um, w- women vomiting kittens is yeah. all I'll say. What more do you want, really? <laughs> so definitely tune in next week. Um, big thank you to Lisa, Andy and um, L- Morty Osborne for editing our podcast and Kyle Chapman for panelling and producing um, our show. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. <laughs>